Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. January 2013, Bangkok, Thailand, and a drug deal is going down. On one side, a Hong Kong triad syndicate with a big claim. There's a giant stash of methamphetamine, highest grade you can imagine, and it's hidden somewhere in the Philippines. The would-be client nods approvingly. He's a DEA agent, and the resulting bust is going to involve British narcos in Thailand, an outlaw biker gang, one of the world's most infamous drug lords, and a crazy team of ex-US Army snipers in the midst of an assassination plot in Liberia. What this deadly band of misfits has in common, apart from the tons of drugs of course, is one of the world's maddest countries, where a shady government agency has become one of the biggest narco-traffickers on earth, feeding the desperate regime of the world's only communist king. This is the nuclear bomb that Meth built. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. So yeah, we're doing a North Korea episode. <laughs> Between that and your Cuba show last week, we'll really be getting that tanky hate. Um, I, I think I've been wanting to do this show pretty much since we started out, which is pretty much a year now, by the way. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Williams. I'm here with Danny Gold. Um, what have you been up to? Are you going to come to Berlin anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm blown away by that intro, man. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm genuinely excited to learn more, and I've got no idea about any of this. Yeah, this stuff is actually fully insane. I don't know how it even exists. Um, but before we get into the story, yeah, we've got Patreon guys, we've got our merches backup stuff, we've got um, YouTube, we've got bonus stuff lined up at the moment, and we're kind of in the swing of it, and we need you guys to keep us going really so keep listening liking give us five star ratings all that kind of stuff um and you know another thing we do on this show is we put all our scripts and reading lists on the patreon which i think for this particular episode is really useful because there's like so much rubbish out there about north korea so many of those boring like look inside pyongyang documentaries it's basically just some journalists on holiday getting shown around dull crap talking to minders i can't believe any editors commission that stuff anymore I feel like there's an NDA in my past that doesn't allow me to say my true feelings on, you know, one or two of those docs right now. <laughs> Is this where we, like, get the Dennis Rodman reference in early, or that can come later down? This is where the lawyers uh, delete a couple of comments by me. Cool. All right. I mean, I, I, I've, I've watched some really great films and docos, like, putting this one together, and it's all up there on the Patreon, guys. We're, like an organized crime substack, but we're cheaper. There's none of the terrible politics, like price of a coffee, guys. Log on, sign up. Yeah, and, and people, I mean, you know, every now and then we get like these comments that that whine about uh, sources or like um, yeah. accuse us of like really not doing any research. But if you look at the, like there's pages and pages of articles and books and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, take a you sign can see up, the take working. a look. All right, let's get, yeah. let's get it going. Um, on to North Korea. And while this focuses today's story on like the little king, the little rocket man or whatever Trump called him, the story of how North Korea became a narco state actually begins over a century ago with a princess 
Diokie, and I know I'll be getting that name wrong, Diokie, is born in 1912. She's the daughter of King Gojong of Korea. Now, Korea has been a Japanese colony for two years already at this point. I didn't, know, I didn't know much about this before this show, actually. And the imperial empire across the sea is just ramping up a cultural genocide. And this is according to History.com. A quote, Schools and universities forbade speaking Korean and emphasized manual labor and loyalty to the emperor. Public places adopted Japanese too, and an edict to make films in Japanese soon followed. It also became a crime to teach history from non-approved texts and authorities burned over 200,000 Korean historical documents, essentially wiping out the historical memory of Korea. That's, that's like an important quote, an important thing to, to, to cover. So I'm going to forgive you for using fucking history.com <laughs> as your source. Oh, thank you. That's so gracious. Um, and... Japan at this time, it also exports Korean men as slave laborers in the imperial empire and women as sex slave, which is still controversially and somehow known as comfort women in Japan. Um, Japan never cops enough stick for basically being a giant monoculture ethnic state. I guess people just like anime or something. Yeah, I mean, let's not even get started on World War II because that'll, yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll take a long time. But anyway, keep moving. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but um, yeah, around uh, like all this time, Princess Diokie is being used as this kind of figurehead, a puppet, and her life's just becoming miserable. In 1925, her father, the king, dies, and she's shipped off to Japan herself. Four years later, her own mother dies, and the princess spirals into depression, refuses to eat, gets dementia. Yeah, she's got dementia as a teenager. That's how stressed this kid is. She's wed to a Japanese noble and has a kid in 1932. She's basically just in a golden cage and getting worse and worse. And as Korean partisans are fighting a losing battle against Japan, they turn on her themselves as a national traitor. Now, I'm telling this story to show just how bad things are in Korea when Japan is invading Manchuria in the early 1930s, one of the moves that's going to kick off the Second World War. And like we went over in our big two-parter on the Yakuza, Opium is a massive part of Japan's economy and its colonies those days. And Korea is a massive supplier of poppies to a trade that flourishes in Japanese Manchukuo, a meth which goes on general sale just in time to become a wonder drug for soldiers in World War II. There's plenty of that being made in Korea too. And like anybody knows, it's never going to really leave the region. Yeah, speaking of wonder drugs and war, I think next week we're going to be doing an episode on Captagon, which is really interesting. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I can't wait for that. It's going to be so interesting. So we get to 1945, right? The bombs drop on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Japan surrenders. And we've got a Korea full of meth factories and poppy fields. And that year, the peninsula is roughly in two halves along its 38th parallel, with Soviets controlling the communist north and the US and its allies back in the south. This guy called Kim Il-sung, a hero of the insurgency against Japan, he's installed as the USSR's guy in North Korea, and he sets about building his workers' paradise with a ton of money from his Moscow sugar daddy. Now, this guy is widely viewed by his people as a national hero, but he's like barely Korean. He's grown up and come of age as a guerrilla fighter in China, and by the time he takes control, his Korean is so bad he needs Soviet translation and training for his speeches. But... Kim builds this mad cult of personality around himself. At first, it's just stuff like being a tactical and political genius, but soon you've got these fable-like stories of him shaming teachers into sobriety and other really weird shit. And it's going to get way weirder with his successes, which we'll dive into later on. I think my favorite one out of all these, I'm not sure if it's him or something like whoever it is, but there's one about getting like 45 holes in one while playing golf which kind of rules because it's the kind of thing I would do if I was a dictator, if I was 13 years old, you know? Yeah, maybe it's like crazy golf or something. And also, I, I mean, I think that you might be lined up and shot for saying that because we're going we're gonna to get into some of this later on, but I reckon his real score, his real score, I'm doing air quotes, is way lower. So I think you'd probably <laughs> be done for uh, disrespecting a dictator there. Anyway, Kim christens the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which, as anybody can tell, has nothing to do with democracy or really looking after its people. I mean, this is Stalin's era, right? So you've got brutal purges, rapid industrialization. But south of the border, it isn't actually much better. In July 1948, the Americans back a guy called Syngman Rhee, who's this right-wing authoritarian who's already, already been impeached once 
before in the occupation years. And this is South Korea's first election, right? And Rhee comes home winner with a totally cool and legit 92.6% of the vote. And he carries out his own purge on leftists this time, murdering up to 200,000 folks. Rhee's bloodbath even grosses out the Americans who tamp down their support and GIs leave the country in their thousands. So, so far, independent Korea, whichever one, is a pretty shitty place to live. Both sides want to unite Korea again, but only Kim has a decent enough army to do it, and in 1950 he invades, and he quickly destroys opposition with Soviet tanks and huge main power. They take Seoul in two days and push remaining US and UN troops all the way to Busan, which is a city right on the bottom of the peninsula. Anyway, this isn't like Dan Carlin's seven-hour history show or whatever, so I won't <laughs> go into too much detail. But the Korean War goes on for three years. It drags in China and America fully into combat. It leaves three million dead, and Korea right back where it was before the war, divided along the 38th parallel. Just this time, it's a carpet bomb wasteland. You really have to do a lot more emphasis in your voice. You know, if you're doing Carlin, just really passionately read the script, maybe drink a couple of scotches before you do it. But I mean, yeah, you know, I've, I, there's, good, there's good way more Marlboro Reds in that voice than I could ever even try. Um, but anyway, here's a quote by the South Korean writer Hwang Sok-yong. People hated and killed each other back then. Now, even those who survived are dying, leaving this world one by one. Unless we find a way to forgive each other, none of us will ever be able to see each other again. Well, spoiler alert, I think he's not going to get what he wants. Um, <laughs> at first, North Korea actually outperforms its neighbor economically. With help from Mao and the Soviets, it mechanizes, builds gigantic factories, trades a ton of materials with its pals in the communist world, it goes through cycles of five-year plans, just like the Chinese, and Kim builds this national ideology of Juche, or self-reliance, with him as its godlike king, turning socialism into this kind of like nutty Leninist monarchy. It's totally bonkers, right? But you know, money-wise, at least it's working at this point. Even if Kim builds concentration camps and there's no free press, and folks are conscripted forever and they have no freedom, but yeah, okay, it's working. Is it though, or is it only working because it's completely Soviet, uh, subsidized by like the Soviets and the Chinese? Well, here we go. I mean, Stalin dies pretty soon afterwards, right? And Khrushchev denounces him and North Korea gets all like pissy, just like Albania back in the day, saying that now the Soviets aren't the real revolutionaries, blah, blah, blah. And they start to drift away from Moscow, which is a bad move. I, I thought we've already discussed there will be no insulting of Albanians on this podcast. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Albania was a worker's paradise and everything was just fine. Um, <laughs> in the 60s, Pyongyang gets pally with Mao's China, but it's sinking into debt and it's failing to meet production goals and plowing up to a quarter of its budget on the military. And I mean, when I say military, I mean a gigantic military. North Korea's population today is thought to be around 25 million, half of South Korea, which makes it the 54th most populous nation on Earth but it actually has the fourth biggest army with over 1.2 million personnel and insane amounts of machinery. Having like 5% of your population in the army is probably a good way to avoid invasion, but it doesn't do a lot for your economy. So in the 1980s, North Korea defaults on all its debts. I mean, it just can't plug all the holes in its awful system with borrowed cash. And then a decade later, obviously, the Berlin Wall falls, Boris Yeltsin staggers half-pissed into the Kremlin, and communism's going down the swanee, right? Suddenly, Juche means sweet FA. It can't trade with anyone, it doesn't have the expertise to buy machinery, fertilizer, equipment, and it doesn't have the cash to buy any. So before the fall of the Soviet Union, was there enough food in North Korea? Like, were they avoiding the famines of the last decade or so, or not really? Yeah, I mean, as far as I could figure out, yes, because they were just getting backed up by their pals, but... Yeah, when everything went to, went to crap, then, then Pyongyang was just like completely on its own. And after the Berlin Wall fell, uh, Pyongyang launches this really creepy campaign to curb people's diets. It tells them, quote, let's eat only two meals a day. Emphasis, Kim's not mine. <laughs> I mean, intermittent fasting, bro. They were just ahead of the curve. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were more than intermittent fasting because like, shockingly, this makes absolutely no difference. And this famine that starts in 1994, that kills between a quarter of a million to three million people. Pyongyang calls it the, quote, arduous march. 
um, relating it to some myth about Kim fighting off thousands of Japanese soldiers in the freezing snow in the 40s, which like somehow makes it even creepier and weirder and more tragic. Um, and this famine, it changes everything. On a personal level, people realise that the state just can't keep them fed. While the Kim's family is now dripping in luxury, it's actually state policy that the leaders live in unbelievable wealth. And whatever the leader says just goes. Actually, in the 1970s, the Koreans give up on the term Marxist-Leninism and they just call their ideology Kim Il-sungism. <laughs> this guy is, yeah, I know, it's incredible. This guy is this like fat, rich gangster living like the godfather, paying off his generals or capos or whatever with bribes and cushy positions as, quote, diplomats overseas. Though we're just about to find out that's not really what their main jobs as envoys are. Kim's personal fortune is supplied by a shady institution formed in the 1970s too. This is called Bureau 39 because it's based out of room 9, floor 3 of the regime's finance department. And this slush fund group, which is answerable only to the eternal leader himself, this is going to become North Korea's drug machine. Where was the money coming from before the drugs? Was that all supplied by, by the former Soviet Union? No, I mean, they were making stuff, so they mechanized, and they were, I think they're like iron ore and, and like raw materials that they were, they were flogging to other parts of the communist world, but, and, and they were big on agriculture, but when it all kind of like imploded in the 90s, um, yeah, that, that kind of changed, and, and North Korea was forced to find other ways to make a living, um, and we're going to see just how they did that. Um, Kim Il-sung is unsurprisingly into some really grim shit, by the way. One of Bureau 39's jobs is to maintain the Kipumjo, or Pleasure Squad, which is an alleged group of 2,000 women kept as entertainment, including sex, of course, for the North Korean leadership and high-ranking members of its regime. Kim Il-sung is into sex as a kind of disgusting fountain of youth thing, believing he could take the life force of young virgins if he has sex with them, I mean, it's pretty straightforward pedo stuff there from your boy, Kim. See, this is the sort of gritty details that our audience comes to us for here. And, you know, that and meth and, like, you know, the occasional yeah. history history lecture that you're giving right now. Oh, yeah. History, meth, and pedos. That's our, like, trifecta of greatness. Um, so, anyway, back to the 1990s, right? North Korea's just gone through this devastating famine. Production is screwed. The economy is tiny, and there's nobody to trade with. Big problem. Kim Il-sung dies in 1994 and his diminutive son Kim Jong-il steps into daddy's shoes and he quickly decides his ultimate dream is for North Korea to get a nuclear bomb which is going to keep everyone's hands off his so-called hermit kingdom. By the way, it's like I found this out. This term wasn't just made for the DPRK. Korea's culture had been so unique and cut off for centuries. It was actually called a hermit kingdom for like pre-colonial Korea. So you can crack that one out at your dinner party and thank me. But... Kim has obviously got barely any money to build this bomb, and North Korea doesn't have any foreign currency fact, thanks to the fact that it's a giant police state with concentration camps in the communist regime. Can you tell that it's shit yet? Um, so he starts dabbling in the dark arts, right? Capitalism. Kim <laughs> encourages local entrepreneurs to trade, though of course everything is kept in close check by the regime. So who is supporting North Korea during this time? I mean, is it... I know that they have close relations with Chi the Chinese. Is China backing them up in any respect? Yeah, it's pretty much China. I mean, China bailed them out in the war uh, and started started beating the US and the UN's ass. And yeah, it's pretty much only China that's that's trading with them. I mean, I guess part of the reason is they don't want a millions and millions of North Korean refugees coming across the border. Um, and I guess like any stability is good for the Chinese. That's kind of how they operate. Part of this era for North Korea is just completely wound up with drugs. North Korea is producing heroin from poppy fields, same as it was doing under the Japanese almost a century before. Almost all of that's going through the folks in Bureau 39, by the way, which is this giant criminal operation, essentially, aimed at getting around sanctions. The UN is just like slapping on the DPRK one after another, making it the most sanctioned place ever and hopefully forever. It joins illegal activity like cigarettes and pirated goods the North has been smuggling all over the world for, like, yonks. And it ferries them about on cargo ships, carrying false flags and other stuff. Cigarette smuggling is such a massive and profitable industry. Like, I feel 
so many mafias and militias are involved in it. A bunch of the ones we've covered. I mean, it's really it's yeah. really fascinating, and I would love to read a history of it. Um, is there like a, a vape smuggling market? You know, we might have to. <laughs> Find out the hard way if we can't get these Patreon dollars up. We've got to get that monster energy drink listener base on board. <laughs> I actually went to Transnistria. Do you know that place? It's like a sort of quasi-neo yeah, state yeah, yeah, on the edge yeah, of Moldova. Yeah. And they make tons of their money, like, basically just, like, selling cigarettes across the border and selling it. You know, the, like, Mashruka vans and stuff like that. They just uh, ship cigarettes into the EU. Anyway, that could be another episode. And this is not all, right? There's... A great documentary on Bureau 39 called Cash for Kim, where they speak to this defected diplomat who said he was stationed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the North Korean embassy just straight up had a mint printing US dollars and then selling the fake notes alongside real ones to local illegal money changers, putting the fakes in the middle of fat wads of hundreds. It's like, this is such basic stuff, but millions is laundered for the DRC's banks and taken out in real dollars and then sent straight back to Bureau 39. Is that, like, that's the plot of Rush Hour or is it the plot of Rush Hour 2? I think it is. I think it might be the plot of Rush Hour, yeah. It's it's yeah. definitely one of the Rush Hours is based on that. <laughs> I mean, like, this stuff is mad, right? These fake notes the DPRK is making, they're so good, they're known as super dollars. And they've caused entire runs on American currency all over the world as folks spooked by news of North Korean bills have rushed to banks to cash their own in. U.S. policymakers have even considered halting production of $100 bills on the back of this, which is nuts. Agents have said the notes are an upgrade on cigarette and pirate entertainment smuggling, which was like a cash cow for years before the notes came along. They've even changed their designs and materials as the Americans have changed theirs. Writes Time magazine's David Warman, quote, These ultra-counterfeits are light years beyond the weak facsimiles produced by most forgers who use desktop printers. I mean... If you're desktop printing a dollar <laughs> bill, like, well done, mate. According to the State Department, by the way, there's around 70 million bucks in counterfeit notes slushing around the global economy, which is like surely BS. That's like barely a speck on the landscape. And there's this Vanity Fair article, right, which chats to a South Korean expert who believes, and this is in 2009, by the way, that the North Koreans have bought enough of the special Fordrinier. I don't know what the exact name, but there's, that's the paper that they print these notes on. They've bought enough of that stuff to make two billion in super dollars. Is this still a thing? Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, yes. And they're all over the place. Um, like this this Vanity Fair piece, which is really cool, by the way, it's from 2009. So that's the last kind of solid one I found. It's about this guy who was sentenced to 12 years. By the way, this is all on the reading list, guys. Another plug for the reading list. Yeah, there's this guy who's sentenced to 12 years and he's making millions in super dollars then just like spending them in casinos in Vegas. And this guy named Liu, he was born in Taiwan in the 60s and went by the name Wilson, which is great, uh, swapping his time between LA and Vegas where he made like bank on the slots. And he tells the writer David Rose, quote, we see the shows like Celine Dion, oh, her songs touch my heart. And in the evenings, we play the slot machines. Dude, some of the scariest people I've met in this world, like real killers, gang members, militia, all that, they just love like the great world-class divas. Her, Whitney, Mariah, all the super, super popular <laughs> 90s ones. I think a lot of people don't realize how absolutely huge that Titanic song was. You know, I still hear it when I'm in the Middle East in, in cabs, like every time you go in, you're going to hear the Titanic song. I mean, if I was going to get like gunned down by a guy with an MP5 for a drug deal it would be it would be like 0.01% like sweetened by having my heart will go on in the background i guess yeah that's the I mean, it's not the worse good, right i mean in slow motion with that playing in the background yeah i can do i can do the like willem dafoe bit and yeah it would okay. actually that scene would be better if it was Celine Dion in the background anyway cash isn't the only stuff bureau 39 rips off like it's been caught shipping illegal ivory from africa dvds Gold, cars, they're basically the Del Boy and Rodneys of global crime if anyone in the UK is listening. Are you getting that reference? No, no idea whatsoever. Nah, didn't think so. The country also has like over 150,000 enslaved workers all over China, Russia, Eastern Europe, and they make the regime up to a billion dollars each year. And this is in a country whose GDP is like 25 billion bucks, which is only a bit more than Staten Island's. And it pumps up to 20% of that straight back into the military. 
that's that's the Staten Island GDP that's on the books, buddy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's probably like 10 times that. And South Korea, by the way, its own GDP is like 1.65 trillion, which is 60 times more in the North. And its people are so much better off. They're actually taller than their Northern cousins. So you can see who's winning on pretty much every front today. And Bureau 39 does some other shit that's just as weird, right? Like when I lived in Dubai, like an eternity ago, there was this strange North Korean restaurant not far from where I lived that did local dishes like cold noodles. And all the wait staff were women in bright traditional dresses. I mean, yeah, that turns out to have been funneling money back to the regime. And it's actually a chain. Yeah, I've seen, there have been stories or video reports on that sort of thing, and it's all just to get foreign currency, right? Yeah, they're desperate for this stuff. Like, North Korea also operates a lucrative museum at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. I mean, even here in Berlin, the North Korean embassy was like, a massive hostel <laughs> in the middle of town whose profits from backpackers went straight into Bureau 39. Like, Jesus. the authorities, I know, it's crazy, right? And it's like right in the middle. You cannot miss it. What's the scene like there? Ah, uh, man, this is like pure pill-popping techno kids, like nothing else. It's like, <laughs> it basically looks like North Korea, which is exactly what the kids are going for in Berlin, right? <laughs> the authorities shut this place down last year anyway, finally. And North Korean officials have been caught running like insurance scams, fake companies, all kinds of underworld stuff. It's basically a state-sponsored mafia, but just sloppier. I mean, it's, it's a pretty much just a mafia state. Bureau 39 has also trained armies of hackers since the 80s, of course. And these guys are like really, really, really good. The Lazarus Group is this hardcore team set up in 2009, and it's been involved in a ton of attacks, including that 2014 Sony Pictures hack. That's the one that came after that Seth Rogen movie about assassinating Kim Jong-un or something. That's Kim Jong-il's son. Kim, Kim Jong-il's son. I'm starting to like see Korean words. Who took over when Kim Jong-il died in 2011. And the Lazarus group, that was also to blame for the 2016 Bangladesh bank heist, which made off with about a billion dollars 2000 WannaCry hack, which I think was like the world's biggest when it happened. And then most recently, the Lazarus Group has hacked like pharmaceutical companies involved in the creation of COVID-19 vaccines, which is really lovely, of course. Can you elaborate on the, the 2016 Bangladesh bank heist? Because I don't remember hearing about that. I feel like, uh, like right now, it's like quite complicated. But basically, from what I remember, it's like Bangladesh's biggest bank and they just sent a massive order that because it was stalled, they could make off with the cash at night. And then before the employees came in in the morning, this cash had like just disappeared from the bank's coffers. But it was like huge. There's a really good, I think I've put it on the reading list as well, but there's a really good Al Jazeera documentary or something about it, which is like all animated and stuff. If it's not on there, I'll make sure it is anyway. But yeah, like these North Korean hackers, they're not just kind of doing it politically, right? They're just, they're just trying to get all of that dollar they're trying to get as much bag as they can and they're getting tons of it and before we get into the narco stuff because i mean that's what you guys are here for right i want to do some kim jong-il inverted commas facts right like the time he invented the hamburger giving it the catchy name double bread with meat and the guy never took a piss or a shit apparently and his birth on a sacred mountain caused the seasons to change even though he's actually born in a Siberian Soviet village, that, that last bit is actually real. Oh yeah, and of course there's that time he shot a 38 under par 34, which beats the lowest ever PGA Tour round by 25 shots, which is pretty, I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I mean, you're already dead at this point, but yeah, yeah, he, he got a pretty low score. And we'll have some more of those for his son later on. So now to the drugs. Heroin production is ramping up in the wake of the 1990s famine in North Korea, as Kim Jong-il is looking for sanction-busting ways to make his nuclear bomb. From 1997 to 2003, more than 20 North Korean diplomats, agents and trade officials are implicated, detained or arrested in drug smuggling operations in more than a dozen countries, including Egypt, Venezuela, India, Germany, Nepal, Sweden, Zambia... Ethiopia, Laos, just like all over the world, these guys. North Koreans have also been arrested in possession of Captagon, yep. which, yeah, we've got coming up. And <laughs> they've been caught making homemade Viagra, 
which, I mean, I wouldn't really fancy my chances trying out North Korean Viagra. In April 2003, Australian troops board the freighter Pongzu, which is owned by North Korea, but it's flying a flag of convenience from Tuvalu. <laughs> Lol. Anyway, the soldiers recover almost 125 keys of smack that has previously landed on an inflatable in the Australian state of Victoria. That's one home to Melbourne, by the way, where we did a show about gangland killings last year. Four North Koreans are detained in this bust, which they're probably thrilled about, right, because they want to leave, and then deported, which they probably aren't. The North Korean regime denies any knowledge of the drugs, of course, but there's more. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the distribution and how that works. Like, are there street gangs and crime families having meetings with North Korean dignitaries to set this up? Are there brokers? Pretty much they're using the same sort of distribution networks as, like, Seichi Lop in Myanmar, the guys that are, like, flogging meth all around the world, Australia, like... You get the Aussie bikies to do your job for you, the outlaw guys. They're mostly based in Thailand, Southeast Asia, Cambodia. And at the end of it is just North Korea's government and not some guy in a Burmese jungle. Yeah, the meth, right? Remember the meth that the Japanese were popping in the war, the ones the soldiers were using to keep them going crazy? North Korea kept its troops high on it in the Korean War as well. And by the early 2000s, it's taking off across Asia especially in Japan, whose people do it to keep going through the country's crazy work culture and get like messed up on the weekend. Around 2004, Kim Jong-il sets up a bunch of massive meth factories, mostly in the country's northeast, near the borders with China and Russia, which is useful, right? Because China is where almost all precursor drugs for meth in Asia comes from, just like we learned in the Burmese lab episode. Most of North Korea's production is based in a city named Hamhyong, which is the site of a chemical plant that the Japanese built during the war. And it has a high number of chemists. It's also one of the worst hit places during that famine in the 90s. And that's important. So this is a Tokyo professor, Stephen Nagy, speaking to Deutsche Welle in 2017. Quote, The North has a long track record of manufacturing and selling drugs overseas. And it's a convenient fallback for the regime to ratchet up production when sanctions are stepped up and it's harder for them to export legitimate goods. I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating how many states and wannabe states or militant groups, revolutionary groups, all turn to drugs to keep themselves propped up. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's something that's so difficult for, like, transnational organizations to keep tabs on, right? I mean, it's just huge all over the place. And like we learned in the Burmese lab episode, like, the links between the Tapmador, the, the Myanmar military and these drug dealers is pretty much just hand in glove anyway kim's plan with these massive meth factories it works in 2005 kim jong-il makes a big announcement north korea's got the bomb hey great news for him and his family probably bad news for like pretty much every other human being on earth and then in 2006 the regime seems to shut down meth production altogether and it even issues a warning to would-be meth lords, announcing that all drug offenders would be sentenced to death, regardless of their, quote, status, services, or achievements. So do they do this just because he gets the bomb and he's like, all right, shut it down, we're done, we don't need to do this anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, like, everything else that goes on in North Korea, it's pretty much speculated on, like, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But just as an expert tells that Al Jazeera documentary I mentioned earlier, that Cash for Kim one, quote, Essentially, North Korea is a criminal record. That is how the regime makes its money. And what this guy means is, basically, North Korea is a mafia. And despite the 06 edict that Kim dishes out, the guys who've been running these meth labs, I mean, remember, these guys have been hit so badly by the famine. They probably don't trust the government provide for them for the, to provide for them again. They just go freelance and they set up their own artisanal operations, probably with some small degree of like consent from the regime. I'm not sure. Nobody's really sure. And anyway, not only is this stuff high grade, but it's fueling a massive domestic rush on meth. It's popular with the elites and families even give each other meth as a gift on special occasions. Just like imagine Lindsay Lohan on a Tuesday, but on a giant scale. Really solid Jay Leno in 2009 joke. I think I might have to sell meth to hire a comedian <laughs> to go through your scripts and punch them up a bit. I, I, I'm going to claim half ignorance on Jay Leno. He's that guy who kind of like stands sideways in the camera and tells crappy jokes, right? Anyway, one defector tells the Wall Street Journal that around 80% of her town is hooked on meth, 
and up to 40% of the population in the Northeast region take meth regularly. This is insane, right? I mean, meth in North Korea is called Bingdu, which is the Korean translation for the Chinese word for ice drug. It's been low-key popular since the 90s when the economy tumbled, public health care disappeared, and people used it to replace medicine, which is pretty awful. Andrei Lankov, who runs the website NK News, tells the New York Times that, quote, meth until recently has been largely seen inside North Korea as a kind of very powerful energy drug, something like Red Bull, amplified. Yes, fucking amplified. That misconception <laughs> that it's like Red Bull, not that it gives you energy, which it most certainly bloody does, <laughs> um, stresses a, quote, significant underestimation within the DPRK about the dangers of drug use. In fact, a rampant meth problem is probably good for the Kims, right? It helps grease the palms of military officials. It dulls people's appetite for freedom or evolution. I guess in that way, it's similar to what the Brits did in China or Burma in the 19th century. Anyway, whatever's going on in the DPRK post-bomb King Jong-il is a different diplomatic proposition for the rest of the world altogether. Different ballgame. And he says he'll come back to the negotiating table if some sanctions are dropped. And just like that, everybody caves in. Tons of cases are dropped. Even the crew of the Pongsu, remember that ship that got busted by the Aussies? They're allowed to go home. Explain this a bit. In return for entering negotiations about nuclear weapons, all the trafficking cases involving North Koreans and in, in, you know, diplomats in different countries, those are dropped? Pretty much, yeah. Like, he's able to... I mean, he's just able to play chicken now with, with the international community. So he's like, well, you don't want to piss me off too much. Which they always said about Gaddafi, right? They were just desperate not to give him the, the bomb. And he ended up dying in a like tube somewhere. So as you might expect during this time, North Korea's narco-trafficking just continues full-blooded. Its biggest market is China, of course, where meth use is widespread. And this is a Chinese official, by the way, speaking to a Newsweek report in 2011. Quote, we don't publicize the drugs coming from North Korea because it would harm the good relationship between China and North Korea. Of all the drugs we've seized this year, it's mostly been ICE because that's our main drug here. I'm genuinely surprised that the Chinese put up with this. I mean, me too. And I mean, meth is still big in China, but like, like I've done a bunch of like work on Burma. They did crack down around 2014, I think it was. So I think it's changed somewhat. But it's still big business. I mean, there's all kinds of meth problems in like Singapore, the Philippines, Japan. Like it's still big business. Anyway, that same year, 2011, Kim Jong-il pops his tiny little clogs and his youngest son, Kim Jong-un, becomes leader of North Korea. And really nothing major changes. Basically, the country is completely a mafia at this point. The Kims are the Corleones and their extended clan controls pretty much everything. Anyone who falls foul of the big man, and he is a big man, is dispatched, sometimes in gruesome fashion. Like, when Kim Jong-un's uncle was executed by anti-aircraft gun in 2013, and that's insane, right? And his body incinerated with flamethrowers, which is pretty narco-y. Like, are these stories real? You know, I always feel like there's a couple countries, especially North Korea, where reporters can get away with writing wild things, just because no one's there and no one bothers to fact check. And I kind of feel yeah. like sometimes you, you hear these stories and it comes out a little bit later that it wasn't true. It's impossible to say for sure, right? I mean, they definitely do have some pretty outlandish execution methods. I mean, like you, you find out that someone is part of some evangelical Christian group that hates North Korea. Uh, and, I, and I found a few of those and I've kind of flagged a few up and not put them in here. But I mean, I've got everything again on the Patreon so people can make their own minds up. If you need any more comparisons to the mob... Kim is thought to have around $5 billion scrawled away in European bank accounts. A human rights official tells the British newspaper The Telegraph that, quote, somewhere in the world there are bankers who are earning a large sum of money by concealing and managing Kim Jong-il's secret funds. And at the same time, almost 9 million people in North Korea are suffering from food shortages. I believe the secret bank accounts are now in Luxembourg, or have recently been transferred from Luxembourg to other tax havens. Well, actually, according to intelligence sources, that should be Luxembourg, Austria, China, Liechtenstein, Russia, Singapore, and our old friends, the Swiss. And they educated Kim too. And I, I saw some video, right, where I think Kim might have even been speaking German, which is pretty nuts. Anyway, 
As giant slush fund, would it go at least some way to explain why the leader of one of the world's poorest countries drives around in a massive Mercedes, wears 12 grand Swiss watches and reportedly eats luxurious food every day? Basically, Kim is like a feudal king. Sources also suggest the Russian mafia is being used to launder dirty and fake money for Pyongyang through the embassy in Moscow as well. I mean, he's not the only leader of a poor country to, to live luxuriously, you know? That's pretty par for the course, I feel like. Yeah, he, I mean, he might be the only one, I don't know. I, it's just like, it's so weird, North Korea. I can't, <laughs> it, I feel like when you start researching it, you go into a different like mindset as well. It's so odd. It doesn't really play by any of the rules of any countries on earth. And it was rumored that Kim died last year, but emerged a few weeks later, with experts speculating that the leader, who's like a big boy, have I not mentioned that before, has had some kind of heart surgery. But he's like a god, right? And we'd be dumb if we didn't include some of those sweet myths, I mean, facts, about the supreme leader. So here's a few. You know that pleasure squad from before, right? The team of virgins Kim has at his daily disposal? Well, he apparently spent 3.5 million bucks on their lingerie costumes in 2016. He's a big fan from cheese from his time studying in Switzerland, which isn't a surprise. And he's a henny man, which is like totally on point. <laughs> Obviously, this guy is big into the NBA, which goes like 20% of the way to explaining his friendship with Dennis Rodman. He's got his own personal band called Moran Bong, which has had hits with catchy cool tunes like Do Prosper, Era of the Workers' Party. Wow. And he apparently likes Disney. And he once stripped an uncle naked and fed him to 120 dogs in 2013, which, yeah, given what you were just saying, I mean, make your own minds up. I've put the links up on the Patreon. Take a look. It's all mental. And at this point, I want to give a shout out to a guy called Ulrich Larsen. He's a chef from Denmark. This is like totally aside, but it's so cool. Who decided he'd go undercover and exposed North Korean drugs and arms smuggling. He spent three years meeting up with Koreans and this Spanish guy named Alejandro Cao de Benos, who's this true believer in Juche, who heads up the Korean Friendship Association, which is just like a front. Wait, I'm sorry, what the fuck? Like this chef from Denmark <laughs> just takes it upon himself to freelance drug deals to expose North Korea? Yep, that's exactly what he did. And like... All this stuff came out in a show called The Mole, which is directed by another Danish guy I really love called Mads Brooker. Uh, he did like a brilliant film 10 years ago called The Ambassador, where he like exposed the shady world of diplomatic credentials in Africa. Yeah, I've seen it. Anyway, yeah. Watch that movie first, then watch The Mole. So some of the hidden camera stuff on The Mole is pretty amazing, right? Like when Cal de Benos, who's this just random Spanish guy who loves North Korea, He's pitching this fake billionaire that the guys, the producers have put up, is just an actor, for guns and drugs. And he's saying, quote, we are developing things in the pharmaceuticals industry that are forbidden in any other country in the world. It's basically the same like methamphetamine. Yeah, it's methamphetamine. And then he tries selling tank and submarine factories, missiles, like this random actor playing a millionaire is like, yeah, I mean, I fancy building a ton of subs this year. And then they get invited to Pyongyang and led to an underground Bianca. And this fucking like actor must really be questioning his agent. He's like probably been like an extra in Parks and Rec or something. And suddenly he's being frog marched to a possible execution spot. But it's it turns out it's a legit weapons and drugs deal after all. And there's a menu of stuff just being laid out on the table. And my, my distrust that I have of all documentary filmmakers is just kicking in a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, you should watch it. It is a good show. Anyway, that year, 2013, is where our story is going to reach its climax with that Bangkok do I mentioned at the top of the show. So, this thin 53-year-old North Korean guy named Ye Tiong Tan Lim and a 41-year-old Filipino tell a buyer, who's actually a DEA agent, that their bosses in Hong Kong can provide high-quality meth made in North Korea. The agent must have been, like, absolutely buzzing at this point. According to the indictment, Lim says that, quote, it's only us who can get from the NK. The NK government already burned all the labs. Only our labs are not closed. So, yeah, that answers the question about brokers. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I don't know whether they're telling the truth, but yeah, it suggests that there was, like, a partial shutting down of these meth labs by the government, but people are just kind of going freelance. And he continues, quote, to show Americans that they are not selling it anymore, they burned it. Then they transfer the meth to another base. So yeah, that's kind of the situation we got. 
Lim says he's going to struggle to get the 100 key the agent wants out of North Korea, but he's got a bunch of storage in the Philippines, which is, yeah, how lucky is that? And now this is where it gets, like, really juicy. There's this band of ex-US snipers wandering around working for Colombian narcos, right? One of them's this 41-year-old vet named Joseph Rambo Hunter, this hulking guy from Kentucky, 21 years in the services, PTSD. Like, this guy is pretty scary, full on. His little gang offers contract kills as bonuses, and it heads all over the world, basically like guns for hire, and it even plots to murder a DEA agent in Liberia, where tons of these drug shipments are going through, wearing masks that make him look like a black man, according to one indictment. Amazingly, at this same point, he's also the head enforcer for Paul LaRue, the mad South African narco, come smuggler, come murderer, come warlord, who we spoke to Evan Ratliff about a while back. Anyway, Hunter, Rambo, he's deep into bikies and drug dealers in Thailand, and there the DEA agent hooks up with two British narcos, whom he convinces to go for Lim's product, that's the North Korean stuff, even though one of them moans that DPRK meth is, quote, expensive, first of all, and it's hard to get in. Wait, I'm, I'm confused. We have the North Korean and Filipino suppliers, we have the DEA yep. agent buying, and the British narcos. But like, where does, yeah. Hunter, where does Hunter and his snipers fall into, into the play here? So they're just like freelancers. They're bumming around the world just working for whoever narco will like pay them. So they're, they're big on LaRue. And I guess they're in the Philippines at the time and going to Thailand is just like part of a normal day for them. And they're just, yeah, this like elite group of ex-army sniper guys running around doing contract kills, doing security for deals. What are they doing in this deal? So they're securing the load. So they're just like there ah. to watch and make sure that everything's like kind of running, running on, on tick. Yeah. These guys, they call the meth, quote, v DVDs in the deal. How clever. And they get to work establishing a route for this high grade stuff into the States. And this stuff is like 98% pure, water white pure, probably higher, I guess. So they find this route through Liberia. And Lim sends over 4,700 keys of tea on a boat to Liberia to check it's all legit. But the DEA's already got everything under wraps, obviously. And when the actual product rolls into town, the cops spring into action. That November, Thai police snag five men, including Rambo, who's like this clique of guns for hire, is supposedly protecting that shipment going through Liberia. Liberia and even plotting to kill a DEA guy in Liberia as part of it, they get those guys. And this isn't even the end of Rambo's story. He's flown to New York alongside these four others. There's a Brit, a Filipino, Taiwanese and Slovak. And he actually manages to slip out of his handcuffs while awaiting trial, which ends his hope of bail. He's sentenced to 20 years in 2015 for the DEA murder conspiracy charge and for his part in shipping cocaine through West Africa as an enforcer for LaRue. So he's not getting done for the North Korean stuff at this point. And then in 2019, Rambo sentenced to life for ordering the gruesome killing of Filipino real estate agent Catherine Lee, which is the backbone of Evan Ratliff's book, The Mastermind, by the way. Just definitely read that, it's amazing. Prosecutors argue that he, quote, tortured, kidnapped and killed people for years, along with other soldiers. So Rambo's deal is basically that he was an ex-soldier, turned contract killer, and he's scoped out Liberia as this great place to hang because it's handling all these shipments for drugs coming from Asia, South America into the States. He's just like greasing all of these huge drug shipments around the world. And he just happens to get involved on the North Korean bust. But he's also wound up with LaRue, Eastern European cartels, according to the feds. And the North Korea and DEA murder plots both end up reaching their climaxes in Bangkok. Rambo's exact role in the DPR case, according to a Vice News piece, sorry, Danny, <laughs> quote, remains a mystery. He has not been charged in connection with the investigation, and his indictment makes no mention of the meth or the defendants in that case. Federal prosecutors handling Hunter's case in New York declined to comment. However, a DEA source does confirm to the media that those cases are linked. And this is a good quote from a US security official after that 2013 bust. Quote, There is no such thing as organised crime in North Korea that doesn't involve the government. Crime is disobeying the leadership. 
They passed a law solely to fool the West, that's those shutting down the meth labs, and they passed it in order to control the businesses internally to make sure people who were in the party weren't operating behind the back of the leadership. It's a soprano state. If they find someone, somebody going around the senior leadership, that person gets whacked. I mean, that guy knows how to play the media. Anyway, I rest my case. And honestly, North Korea just seems to be getting more hermetic, more desperate, more depressing, setting up missiles all over the place and retreating deeper into this mad form of communism. I wouldn't bet on a change anytime soon unless Kim has a heart attack like his granddad. Who knows? That's our show this week. North Korea. Insane, eh? Who'd have thunk it? Please do like, subscribe, share, rate, all that stuff. And I'll have someone talking on the Patreon about North Korea some more, uh, I think like in a couple of days or so. So if you're more into this this kind of stuff, check into that because I'm fascinated by this and I hope this somehow goes some way to like understanding how this whole mad drug North Korea thing operates. So yeah, that's the show. Awesome. Um, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Make sure you do all that stuff. Tell a friend, tell another friend, tell a family member, all that stuff to listen to the podcast. And uh, take care. Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. And we're the hosts of Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power. Now on Podcast One. We want to debunk the myth that people who join cults are uneducated because anyone can be manipulated by a narcissist. And we should know we both have been. Join us every week as we explore the world of extreme belief, talk to survivors and experts, and share our own experiences with cults and the abuse of power. Get new episodes of Trust Me every Wednesday on Podcast One and anywhere you get your podcasts. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.